Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost. My turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Hey now, welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Appreciate you all being here. Today is one of these shows I'm really excited about. It's the kind of guests that I really constructed this show to serve, really. These are the, these are the guests I want to have on this show. Uh, let me just remind you before you move on here that uh, I need your support. Uh, I need your support over at the, the Dr. Drew Streaming Shows on 3 o'clock, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on um, drdrew.tv, drdrew.com. It is called Ask Dr. Drew. And Wednesdays particularly, we have like a million views where people are uh, – we're discussing with Dr. Kelly Victory the people that have been silenced on social media and what they've got to say. And it's been rather interesting. i got to say I don't – you know, some of it seems like they're over their skis, but some of it seems – I always walk away with some dis- discreet, like specific headline that I did not know. Like yesterday – I uh, particularly like talking to people who are in the room when some of the decisions were made. And I've been of the opinion for quite some time that we're going to find some evangelists. Uh, we're marching off uh, without any authority or orders. And uh, Dr. Hatfield confirmed that as someone who was at the NIH and the CDC when all this was going down. But you have to listen to find out more about that and also keep support of the people that support us here at this podcast. Today, Eugene G. Lipoff, uh, he's a physician, and he has a book called The Invisible Machine, The Startling Truth About Trauma and the Scientific Breakthrough That Can Transform Your Life. This is a direct referral from our friend Stephen Porges. And if you want to, as I said, I had trauma neurobiology in mind and interpersonal neurobiology in mind when I started doing the Dr. Drew podcast. Like, Gary, how long was it? Six years ago? Seven years ago? Seven, maybe. Sheesh. Uh, don't do that. A long time ago, and uh, you can uh, search Porges, P-R-G-E-S, and Shore, Alan Shore, S-C-H-O-R-E, if you want to get the fundamentals we talked about, uh, what's currently sort of thinking about the polyvagal theory and the interpersonal neurobiology. Today's guest, Dr. Lipoff, can be found at his website, Dr. D-R Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E-L, excuse me, Dr. Eugene Lipoff.com. E. Lipoff, L-I-P-O-V-M-D, at Twitter and Facebook, Eugene Lipoff, and LinkedIn, Eugene Lipoff. Uh, Dr. Lipoff, uh, physician, researcher. He's uh, certified in anesthesiology and specialized in intervention-based pain management. He has received his bachelor's in biochemistry from Northwestern and also medical school there at Northwestern. PTSD research earned him invitation to testify before the U.S. Committee on Veterans Affairs in 2010. And obviously, the issue of, of uh, trauma is a major issue for the VA. He's authored over 40 publications. Dr. Lipoff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So shall we start with the, the book or should we start with the, your basic story in trauma and your observations and how they evolved? Or how do you want to proceed here? All Both interest me greatly. Well, I can give you the background. Okay, let's do it. I, and the way we, I met Dr. Porges was actually quite interesting. So I think you may find it interesting since you know, Stephen. Um, so I was born in Ukraine and I left Ukraine when I was six. So my father had severe PTSD from World War II. Mm. And then, um, so he gave that to my mother. Mm. So in uh, circles, psych circles, it's now called secondary PTSD. Mm. So that eventually led to my mother's suicide mm. when I was an intern in uh, surgical residency. Oh my. So, I, so I just want to, I want to stop you. So you were first a general surgical resident? I started as a general surgical resident, yes. And how many years of that did you do? I did two years. And then you switched to anesthesia? Is that what happened? That's correct. Okay. Keep keep going. Yeah. So after that, uh, so I got into pain medicine. Uh, and then during pain medicine, actually, I had a patient that had severe cough flashes. And I called up my brother. And he thought, you know, he tried to treat her because he's an internist. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't able to solve her problems. So he said, oh, you do the stellar ganglion block thing, mm. which is an injection in the neck for CRPS or burning of the hand. And he thought that hot flashes and burning of the hand is the same thing. So I did stellate, and it took away hot flashes, mm-hmm. which was pretty amazing. So I had no idea why I did that. 
So I actually published in Lancet Oncology. You and I both know that's a pretty big journal. And then, uh, so then I, there was a paper, a Chicago Tribune came in to do a story about me. And it was a very ugly story, shall we say. Why? So, well, <laughs> they said it works, but um, they said, you don't know how it works, so it's total garbage. That was a lot. You, you know, there's a, there's a whole little community of people who've had various kinds of sympathetic blockades who report sort of more chaos coming from their body, let's say, than before. Have you, have you seen all that? It's it's a small group, but they're loud, <laughs> and I've noticed that. Yeah, that they're getting you know this. Yeah, I don't sweat in my face anymore, but I sweat in my ass, and I'm more anxious, and you know at least kind of it's all over the place. Who knows what that is? But I wonder if well, they were getting hold a hold of that guy. Yeah, so that's different. So, well, so I I, I will include it in my answer. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it was an ugly paper, and then. So the main concern, they said it does work, but you don't know the mechanistics. So I read about 3,000 articles about stellates and unusual uses of stellates. So one of them was a paper from Finland where they do T2 clipping to take away hand sweats. And they reported that PTSD stopped as well. Mm. So that led me to, I called my brother again. I said, hey, I think this is going to work for PTSD. I called him up. And he sent me a patient that was uh, robbed at gunpoint, and he was on his way to psychiatric admission. So we did the injection on him two months after the procedure, and symptoms went away. Yeah. So I think what you're describing is the clipping. Mm-hmm. When you do clipping in the chest, mm-hmm. that has a, a very pronounced impact. Uh, we are doing stuff I do is telegangnium blocks, which is just local anesthetic that lasts about eight hours. We don't usually see those kind of. Oh, so it's not a it's not a permanent breakdown of the stellate gang. Interesting. So, so let's let's for people let's sort of talk about it. Let's step back a little bit further uh, and talk about uh, the the autonomic nervous system. So, so your brain. I think people understand sort of. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast kind of understands the structure of the brain. Kind of understand what a brain is and a spinal cord is. And we've, you know, in the 1990s, we went through the decade of the brain. Well, we sort of left out the fact that the reality is the brain is embedded in a body, and it's really the brain body that is the important sort of phenomenology. And the brain body is embedded in a social system that is equally as important as the brain, the body, and then the other humans and how they affect each other. And a big piece of that is not the central nervous system, but the bodily-based nervous system, which has two components, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. We've been talking about the sympathetic. Now, parasympathetic is Stephen Porges' area. This is the, the main output is the vagus nerve. And much to my surprise, I was trained that the vagus nerve eh, slows the heart down, maybe modulates acid secretion by the stomach, and that's about it. Maybe slows your gut down if you're really scared, <laughs> and that's about all we got. Well, it turns out something like 80% of the vagus nerve is going back to the brain, information going back to the brain, which was never, ever discussed in medical school for me. So it's a two-way system. It's widely distributed throughout the body through these giant plexi, these big nets of nerve over our pelvis, our abdomen, our chest. We have no idea how that's integrated, but okay, there's that. And then there's the sympathetic nervous system, which is sort of the accelerator, sort of, of the nervous system. And that has a very strange structure, if you stand back and think about it, where it's embedded in certain parts of the spinal cord and comes out and causes these these little round nodules alongside of the spinal column outside of the cord, outside the bone. And at each level of which the nerve emerges, you see one of these knots. One of the questions I've had, because the sympathetic is so obviously structured in a very specific way, do we know why? What that does? That little structure? Uh, if, if I may, I'd like to give you a different anatomical perspective. Okay, please, please. Did it, well, if I said something wrong, correct it specifically. Did I give a specific error? Yeah. Yeah. So, so let, let, I mean, actually, the way I met Stephen is because some gentleman read my article and he said, you know, it's like you're like the king of sympathetics, whatever that means. Yeah. And Dr. Porges is Steve is a king of parasympathetic. You guys should meet. And we were both in Chicago. 
That's so funny. I went to say hello to five minutes. I left about six hours later. Um, so if you look at sympathetics, it starts in nucleus ceruleus from the brain, goes down the spinal cord. It exits at multiple levels, but I'll give you more specifics on that. If you, the highest level that sympathetic fibers are at is T2. From T2, they then proceed down to C71, and the fusion of that is called the stellar ganglion. There is another ganglion, it's called the middle cervical ganglion, C6, and there is superior cervical ganglion, which is C3. All those nerves and ascend to the brain come back, as you were saying, via vertebral artery, inferior ones, internal carotid, superior ones. Hang on a second. So, so they, they don't go back in through the e- efferent system. They follow the so-called neurovascular bundle back. Correct. So they're going That's back correct. along the arteries, literally back to the brain. Okay. Correct. Interesting. And that has been proven definitively by using retrorabies virus marking. So there's no question. Okay. So I, I really want to emphasize this. So both systems, parasympathetic, sympathetic, have an outflow and an inflow to the, from the brain and to the brain. And, they're, and these are primitive systems. We share these with lizards and I don't know about birds, but probably uh, in some degree or another. And, and this is a universal feature of at least mammals. And the ex- exiting part of the system is what's been emphasized throughout the history of medicine. <laughs> and uh, what we've started recently talking about is that these things have an afferent system and it's quite robust. And they're very specifically organized in ways that are sort of are counterintuitive, right? I, I did not know it followed the neurovascular bundle back. I just thought it went back along the same, much like the vagus is a, you know inflow and outflow. I thought it went back through the ganglion. So the ganglion is not a processing center for input and output. It's just for output. Yes? It's only for output. So basically, you have preganglionic fibers go yeah. in the ganglion, yeah. with the synapse, and then the final neuron goes up to the brain. Okay. I mean, that, that's how sympathetic is organized. And where does it go? Because we know where the parasympathetic is. The vagus is in three nuclei at the level of the, essentially the medulla. Where does the sympathetic go? Well, sympathetic starts in nucleus ceruleus. But where does it go back to? I, I'm, I'm going to okay. give you an answer. Okay. If you label the sympathetic nerves, so you put retrorabies virus into stellar ganglion, yeah. uh, it goes all over the brain. But the primary, there's a lot of connections to prefrontal cortex, uh-huh. amygdala. Uh-huh. And then insulin. Okay. So, if- so fascinating, right? And so you would predict that that if I if you were to ask me the areas, I wouldn't have necessarily said the prefrontal. I would have said that as a sort of secondary phenomenon. But I would have put insula. I would have put amygdala, and probably some all kinds of other secondary kinds of stuff. Right. Going the limbic to, system. Yeah. And, and so the, just for people again, so we're clearing our, our terms, amygdala is sort of the saliency marker of the system. People talk about it, the fear system, but it really is – that's important. That's really what overall the, the, the amygdala does. It fires off when something's important and it's associated with fear. And then the, um, the insula, well, that's to me the most fascinating part because that's what's going haywire in chronic pain and in PTSD, Right. No, actually, PTSD is more amygdala. The insula goes crazy with crying pain, hot flashes, and addiction. Yeah. Those are three things that live in insula. Yeah. I mean, there's many other things, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, but, the, and the insula is sort of um, – well, how do you understand the insula? Let's, let's talk about it. The insula cortex. So insula cortex – well, I mean, it's, it's part of the limbic system. So it's a gateway. So if you look at CRPS, the burning of the hand – so there is so, a so hold, hold on a second. We got to define it. Co- complex regional pain syndrome, which used to, go, used to be called pseudex atrophy, or what else did we call RSD. it? RSD. Yeah, yeah, we call, yeah. We called it reflex sympathetic dystrophy, right? So we knew the sympathetic thing was involved with that. Let me ask you a quick question while it's on my mind. Have you sure. seen uh, complex regional pain without exposure to opiates first? Oh, absolutely. Okay, because because the because sometimes I started wondering, kind of the opiates causing this or something. But go on, insula. Here we go. RSD. Yeah, no, we can. That's a long discussion. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but if if you look at there is a model that looks at mechanical adenia, so just very specific way of activating the nerve fibers. Yeah. And do functional MRI. It demonstrates the insula lights up. Yeah. So if you look at half flashes in women, insula lights up on fMR. Mm. Uh, people who are gay 
shaving and I hit the pedal, whatever, instantly also lights up. So to me, it's a it's a gateway station. Also, there is a direct connection, two-way connection between amygdala and insula. So insula is secondarily involved with amygdala. So to me, it's functional. It does coordinate the input from various sensor yeah. to where you perceive it. And, and did I did I catch the did I characterize the sort of general gestalt the amygdala correct as by calling it a saliency indicator? Oh, I agree with you. One of the way I explain to patients is like if amygdala is unhappy, nobody's happy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Right? Because if you look at the brain scans of PTSD people, their amygdala is overactive. Yeah. And then you can think with neocortex or the cortex, you know, the modern cortex, saying you're actually happy. It's not gonna work. <laughs> And action. What's up, everybody? I'm Sarah Gretzky. And I'm Natalie Buck. And we've definitely been known to cause a scene. So whether you've binged a show this weekend... Or you don't even know what a streaming service is. Don't worry, because on Causing a Scene, we've got you covered. From Netflix to Hulu and everything in between. Grab your popcorn... Or your martini... And get ready to cause a scene with your new best friends every Thursday. And so before we got to this particular understanding of the sympathetic system, um, the insula and that region had been something that was highly uh, – became an area of focus maybe 30 years ago. Gosh, I forget how long I've been – maybe 20 years ago following ne- interpersonal neurobiology. You're probably familiar with Alan Shore and some of his stuff and uh, affect regulation, the origins. Of, okay. Kind of. Okay. He, he, he really is one of the founders of the field of interpersonal neurobiology, how we affect each other, how our neurobiologies affect each other. It gets pretty complicated. But he zeroed in quickly on the orbital frontal system. Uh, right. and, and isn't the insula part of that? Is it sort of in the same zone or is that no, different? it's lower. It's lower. No, it's lower uh, yeah. And, and you, does anything happen to the orbital frontal system during the insula activation? Yeah, it, you're talking prefrontal cortex. The, the, I think I'm talking. I think I'm talking about the dors- uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Yes, I think that's what I'm talking about. There are connections from that a bivalent connections to the insula and amygdala. They're all talking to each other. So prefrontal cortex will give you volitional control over that yeah. attention. I, I'm 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 moving towards this idea. I'm trying to push you towards this idea of the the socially embedded context of these things and its relevance to how the insula responds to some of these experiences not that much i don't i don't know don't have that, that okay. that's I, I that's not how i see the world i see the world in much more simplistic terms yeah you're we're we're uh, we are biological preps with a sympathetic system <laughs> Well, let, let me give you an example. You, you, you give you give and, me your assessment of that. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. And by the way, I'm not being pejorative at all. I, I, I have times when certain things uh, absolutely uh, are are better conceived that way. It just it just you can help people better. So go ahead. Well, sometimes simplicity works. Anyway, so lo- look at the example. So we had a patient that was 16, 16 years ago. He was special forces from Peoria, Illinois. And uh, uh, so he had to shoot a 10-year-old kid laden with explosives in Iraq. Mm. So pieces of a child hit him. It was horrible. Mm. And then he came home. He tried to kill his wife a few times. Right? So he, he was referred to me. We did the block on him. And then this was 16 years ago. So about 30 minutes later, he said, I feel great. And the memory of the experience, instead of being this horrible color, painful experience, now it's in black and white. So I'm now calm. It's 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 not re- being revivified. So, Correct. So so it's again. I'm just talking from where I understand these things. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of PTSD is as uh, some of the famous. Uh, 
sort of uh, writers on the topic say it's uh, the body keeps the score, right? As uh, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, and so, are are you disconnecting from the body in some way with this, or are you just reintegrating it, or what? What do you think is happening? No, let me give you a different perspective. And, and by the way, do you do both sides? One at a time. Is there a difference? Both because it's dangerous. Is there a difference in sort of what one side does versus the other? Yes. I, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess the right, right the later. right side is more powerful. Guess correct. Me. Yeah, yeah. So the right side uh, sympathetic is more dominant. Yeah. So typically, what we're seeing, and I can't, I don't have proof yet of it, but um, adult trauma seems to reside more on the right side. Yes. Pediatric trauma seems to be right and left. P- pediatric trauma is that what you said? That makes sense. So it's more global. Interesting. So, so if you think about what happens, so there was a study done by Dr. Alkire from Long Beach, California in 2015. And what he found is that when they do the block on people with PTSD, that amygdala was deactivated. He mm-hmm. used PET scans for that. Mm-hmm. So which consistent. So the thought that I have for, you know, the patient we talked about, Jason Brown. So, he had uh, amygdala was overactive and hippocampus was relatively not as effective or active. So the block deactivates the amygdala, thus reduces the fear and they can sleep. So that's extrinsic memory lives uh, in amygdala. Intrinsic memory lives in hippocampus. Mm-hmm. So that's why his normal memory came back up, but he didn't have this emotional horrible oversight and he was able to sleep well first night in five years and so let's give people a little you know i want to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about it's sort of uh you know implicit versus explicit memory so implicit is sort of this bodily based emotional right brain kind of experience and explicit is more what we think of as a cognitive screen memory or words attached to it or something right regular memory Regular regular memory right not emotional memory right uh, and again, right-sided, that tends to be right-sided dominant. Uh, ha- do you have data now on the degree to which you can predict a positive outcome? Uh, you're at, well, that's a complex way, I think, of asking what's the success rate. Is that what you're asking? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> uh, the last paper I published, 2022, was our success rate – is defined by PCL drop, which is pretty standard PTSD checklist five. And that seems to draw in about 80 to 85% of the time seems to work. And I, I always learn from when thing, you know, much like I weren't learned from pathology, what normal function is. I also learn what I'm doing from a therapeutic standpoint when it doesn't work. So what do we think what is happening to those people where it's not working? Well, that's a great question. I, I don't have an absolute answer. So uh, it could be genetics, a genetic difference. It could be the follow-through is not the right way. Uh, and the other part is, if you look at the literature in um, the pain, the CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, or previously known as RSD, uh, we have, when somebody comes in, they have that, and I do the block, two things can happen. They can have relief, and that's defined as sympathetically mediated pain, and if it doesn't work, it's called SIP, sympathetically independent pain. They could be I- irreversible changes in the brain after doing a block. I think that's what happens. So in other words, rather than it being it, much like if somebody has, well, let's just, this isn't a good analogy, but I'm going to use it, uh, has a chronic pain syndrome in their hand and uh, demands to have the hand removed, the pain doesn't go away even after the hand is removed because that's something can happening. Worse. can make it, yeah, worse. it makes it worse. Right. It's because that's something happening in the brain, not in the periphery and not in the proximal sympathetic. Do you, um, do you use it for chronic pain too? I'm trying to, other than RSD, do you? Yeah. So the most common, I've used it primarily for RSD or CRPS, but also for shingles pain. The words beautiful oh. Shing- oh, yeah. shingles of the face. Really? Where do you, what do you clip? So you can do it V1? Can you, can you do the first branch or the fifth nerve? Well, the great thing about it is you can do superior cervical ganglia. That affects it. The whole thing. Wow. Yeah. 
So uh, shingles, again, it's a virus, chickenpox-ish, um, has a horrible pain syndrome associated with it. Get your vaccines, everybody. Uh, and the worst one, in my experience, is the, it hits the, when it hits the face, there's a facial sensory nerve that it follows. Sensory? Five, yeah. And, um, and there's three components to that. But when it gets the superior one, what's called five, so-called first branch, it can get in the yeah. eye, get in the eye, and it's a mess. It's a damn mess. I've had, yeah, it can ulcerate the eye. I've had people get akathisia from V1 chronic pain, and uh, it makes me wonder: Have you ever tried to treat akathisia with with this? No, I don't it, see that population. It, it, I think it would work. I think it would work. I, you I need think to find akathisia. Akathisia is a a series, a grouping of neurological syndromes uh, that is. Um, poorly characterized, so I'm going to have trouble telling you exactly what it is, but it's associated with constant movement, agitation, something that the patients describe as anxiety, but is really agitation and a feeling that they're going to jump out of their skin. And the feeling is so uncomfortable that they will throw themselves off buildings and things. It, it's, it's one of the most miserable states that humans can get in, and they just pace all day. They just pace. They can't sleep. It, it's like you know, it's Bhutan death march for twenty four seven, and it is horrific. It has a few treatments here and there, and this and that, and it does tend to kind of be self limited usually, but it can go on for years before it mitigates. And uh, but it has this same quality to it as the pain. It's often associated with chronic pain, in my experience. But anyway, so it's something to think about. And those people are very difficult to treat, and would be, I mean, open for aggressive measures. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know much about it. Okay, I'm, I may send you people because sure. we can we certainly try. I because mean, people get super desperate with that one. Um, it's uh, so uh, where are we? Where have we gotten? He, he, I'll let you sort of lead me from here. Well, my question well, we talked about answered. well, we talked about some of the neuroscience, yeah. Um, so we've tried, we've so the paper that I'm quoting from 2022. We looked at 25 different types of trauma that seems to be effective across the board. So type of trauma doesn't make a big difference. Uh, we tried military, non-military trauma, men, women, children. And it seems to work across the board, which is great, which kind of makes sense because if you think about sympathetic system is all pervade, uh, pervasive. So uh, the reason we wrote the book, my uh, book partner and I, was that we were trying to put it in lay people terms because I think there's more interest in stellate as the time is going by. And it's one of the emerging therapeutic modalities for PTSD because it works so rapidly. Usually it works, let's say, 20, 30 minutes. Mm. It may last a month or years. And the compliance is high, right? So I put people to sleep in about three-quarters of the time because they don't want to see the needle, they don't want to feel anything, about a quarter want to be awake. So compared to other modalities, therapeutic modalities in psychiatry, it has a big advantage. And since I'm the one who started it, um, I would say I'm a huge proponent of it. How, how does Porges understand what you're doing? And what were kinds of questions was he is he interested in? <laughs> we have, I, I, I love that, bad, but we had some very in-depth discussions. So my theory of what happens there is what happens during PTSD and reversal. So when somebody has severe trauma, NGF, nerve growth factor, is produced in the brain, and it's carried to the sympathetic chain, which leads to um, sprouting. So extra sympathetic nerve growth, and has been shown in animal models. So as long as there is increased sympathetic nerves, which is sustained when there is NGF increase, it uh, increases norepinephrine levels. So if you take a CSF or sp spinal fluid around the brain in the soldier with PTSD, you'll find there's increased norepinephrine, which makes sense. So when you put local anesthetic, uh, then what it does, it reduces NGF. That's been shown in animal models, and that leads to pruning. So instead of going, you know, let's say there are eight fibers, now they're down to four. So you bake the baseline, and then local anesthetic seems works quickly in about 10, 15 minutes. That's why it works fast. The big question I always had and everybody else had was why does it last sometimes for years? 
Well, the, so, the pruning, I, in the way you described it, it makes me understand the sustained effect. It makes me less understanding of the immediate effect. Well, I can tell the immediate effect easily. Because if you think about it, sympathetic chain, let's say it's a regular nerve. Right? Let's say I numb up axillary ex- nerve, right? The hand goes down about five minutes, right? So when you do that at, to a sympathetic ganglia, so no, there's no more secretion of norepinephrine, right? Yeah. And there are stores, there are sites where the brain is going to suck up norepinephrine. Oh, so it's going to, I see. Right. So it's going to so, reuptake it. Correct. It's reuptake. That's why it goes down so yeah. quickly. I see. Interesting. That's, that's fast. So it's really a, a steady state that's pushed in a certain direction. Right. So that's my opinion. Yeah. Dr. Porter's opinion is that there is a balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Yeah. So in PTSD, stellate is dominant. When I put it to sleep for a little bit, parasympathetic exerts control and stays in control. And that's why people are better. Well, I mean, that probably happens a little bit, but that doesn't explain why they are better. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I think, I think my theory would be is that the, the inciting mechanism is probably afferents from the parasympathetic freeze response. And once that's set up, the sympathetic takes over. For some reason, I, I don't know what that because mm, so much no. what, well because so much what we see is dissociation, sort of somatoform dissociation, right. and and psychological dissociation and that is mediated by the vagus, and then the body becomes this source of scary, so called the patients will describe scary information that they can't regulate and understand. It's just all overwhelming, but the dissociation that the somatoform dissociation is initiated by the parasympathetic freeze response, we think. Is that fair? Well, I, I agree with that, but my point, my only point is not everybody who develops PTSD freezes. Uh, I'm going to argue, you, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, that, that at very least you have to have an experience of powerlessness to have trauma. Is that an accurate thing to say? No. no. What would you say? I, no, so I'm not. Yeah. So actually, I've had long discussions with Stephen about it. So here's what he told me: so interesting. So obviously, he studied his model in reptiles and things like that. So yeah. The diet reflex. Yeah. Is hold still, hold your breath, whatever. Yeah. The mammals do very badly when we're not moving. Yeah. We feel like we're dying. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, but you know, he. So there are three stages of response to stress. It is mild reduction of vagal tone number one number two is sympathetic number three is when you can't get away then you shut down when it's so overwhelming and, and let me just say in that state you're both hyper stimulated and hyper inhibited simultaneously correct right. okay correct but if you look at let's say there's a battle right let's say you have special forces out in the battlefield and there are six of them let's say three get shot or killed or exploded something horrible happens the people who see it continue fighting and go home. They never shut down, but they have PTSD. Well, if you've, I've done special forces training, and you and you learn to push through shutdown. You you dissociate completely, and yet you keep having sort of muscle memory of the training, and you keep going. Uh, that that kind of happens, but but okay. But we can argue they certainly don't freeze yeah, I, physically. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but my point is. My I, I, I my theory is that the amygdala is active. Yeah. Clearly amygdala gets overactivated in PTSD. Yeah. I seem to agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are definitely sympathetic supply to the amygdala. We know that. Yeah. We know there is increased norepinephrine in PTSD in a human model. That's all I know. Outside of that, I don't know. I, I get I understand. <laughs> Pick up that glass of Pinot Grigio, your drink of choice, and come have some fun with us on Turtle Time. We're going to do more than just drink and party on this podcast, Mom. I know, I know. Okay, if you don't know who I am, well, I'm Ramona Singer, and that's my daughter, Avery. And you probably know us best from the Real Housewives of New York. And now you'll get to know us even better on our podcast, Turtle Time. Let's make more iconic moments together every Wednesday. It's Turtle Time. Follow, rate, and review now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And and let, let me go back to the structure of the of the sympathetic nervous system because you've already taught me a bunch on that front. That's cool. T- two things. Why do we think it's structured the way it is? Is there something about the physiology of the system that, or the evolutionary biology of that system? It helps us understand why it's put together the way it is, number one. And then number I can two, give you a guess. Okay, I'm, I'm going to a second part before I forget, which is, is there an ascending component for this, which is why you're working with the upper ganglion so much, or is that just something else about – in other words, is there an ascending sort of uh, – much like the spinal column has an ascending kind of – their levels of the ascending input and output. Does the sympathetic have something ascending as well? Yes, it does. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. So, well, let's go back to our previous discussion. Yeah. Um, so, if you think about it, if you if you you're going to design a body, if you're running from the tiger, you don't want to turn everything on one at a time, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You want you take one switch, you just flip the switch, and yeah. you start running. So that means the entire sympathetic system gets activated. That makes your heart go faster. It reduces circulation to small blood vessels. All of that happens simultaneously all at once. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. As far as, so so if you think about it, nucleus ceruleus is a seat of sympathetics, obviously. Yeah. When it says go, it's going, right? We're going, we're running, we're running. But at the same time, there is a loop back through the stellate and superior cervical ganglia, which we know for a fact is connected to the amygdala. So now you activate the amygdala, you're looking around so you don't get killed. If you're an antelope, you heard the little click, you're running and you're looking around so you don't get eaten. Mm. So that makes perfect sense to me. But, but I guess the thing that's always uh, – and, and so it sounds like the, the afferents are probably faster in a weird way. Are they? I know. Hard to know, but I, I, I don't know that part of the anatomy because it it seems it sounds well it sounds more direct and more distributed, so that's it, that makes sense, right? You want the whole brain alert and uh, watching out, right? No, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but but I'm always wondered why it was these nuclei along the spinal column. Is there anything about that synaptic processing along? Yeah. What no, is what I is mean, that? I can tell you some of that. Yeah. What so is basically, that? Basically, you organize. So, for example. You have cervical sympathetic ganglia, right? Yeah. You also have lumbar sympathetic ganglia. Mm-hmm. So if I do a lumbar sympathetic block, your foot will get warm. In women, uterine pain will go away and so on. Mm. So this is where the sympathetic fibers, this is afferent. So efferent, so you have the fibers bringing information back, you're going to have nerve pain. And so when somebody has a crushed foot, for example, if you crush sympathetic nerves and they start the cycle, and that's the thinking, then it turns on part of the brain, like the insula, and then people have CRPS. So, so the ganglion is a, a, a place to sort of like an ampl- – like a, it's almost like a capacitor, right? It's like it's amplifying things a little bit. I mean, to, I mean, ganglion is just the place where the two nerves come together. There's a synapse. That's all. Why, why does it require a synapse there? That's, I guess, synapse. Right. That's sort of what well, I've always found then, Again, I think the only person that knows is the man upstairs. Right. But if you think about it, if you don't have a synapse, then you have to have a very long neuron. Mm-hmm. Longer the neuron, the more potential for damage. Okay. Here you have a break in between. So we could just say very simply Perfect. that during biological evolution – it was a better way to survive having having a connection there, which is always the case, right? Always. I assume so. I don't know. Yeah. So talk to me about the book. So you brought in other team members and tell me about what happened. Yeah. So so my partner who he and I wrote a book together. So he is not not medical at all. So he had the treatment and he really loved how it affected him. Oh. He he's a big brander kind of guy. So he came in. He knows how to brand things. So he said that this makes a huge difference in my life, and I know it made huge difference in many other lives, so I would like to write a book together, and he did wrote, he, he did write a book in the past, so he knew a publisher that we were currently using, uh, so it's, I think it has a really good mixture of sciencey stuff, as he would call it, and real people's stories. It says and, art, artists and special forces are as well, and a sheriff. Are those some of the patients, or... Yes, yeah. a lot of I, I I do a lot of work with special forces, especially from Bragg. Um, 
he is an artist. Uh, there are people we've treated who are exonerees. Uh, we've treated people from jails. We've treated children. Uh, not 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 everything is in the book, of course. But the the uh, so Jamie's perspective as is my perspective is that many more people have so-called PTSD, right? So the term PTSD, I truly believe, needs to be changed to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Uh. So I don't know. Have you heard of Frank Ugbert? No. no. I thought I knew everyone in this field. <laughs> ahead, very famous psychiatrist. Yeah. So he came up with the term Stockholm Syndrome, which I'm sure ah, you know about. Yes, okay. So he believed the name needs to be changed to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, because yeah. there's a biological change in the brain. Because you can do a brain scan and say, hey, this person has PTSD. Yeah. yeah. So again, the book summarizes science stuff and real-life stories and ideas to get people to have, for them to have hope that there is treatments available and that they're not crazy. Oh, this yeah. is real stuff going on in their bodies oh, yeah. that can be helped. And then, you know, afterwards, if they do meditation and relatively short amount of psychological intervention, they could be back to normal or better than normal. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Vandelkoek and his stuff. He's the body keeps the score guy. Yeah, well, of course. I've, you, I've met him. And, and is he is he he seems open to everything, right? He seems like we got to figure. You know, he also talks about changing the nomenclature. Have you talked to him about that? Yeah, he has his own particular perspective. Our our perspectives are not similar. I no, of course not. But but it, it you you just pointed out that there are post-treatment kinds of interventions that could help sustain it and improve it. And you said meditation, mindfulness, that kind of stuff. And, and, I, and I think that's right because the brain is such a protein sort of a instrument that not any one thing is going to affect everybody precisely the same. They're, they're sort of – It's a complex structure. Yeah. And, and back to the question about the 15% that didn't respond, do you do careful psychiatric – screening on those folks because I, I, it just feels to me like a more complicated psychiatric syndrome would get in the way of response for this we're getting there so i am a medical director for stella center so we are an international company and we provide those services in 35 sites in uh, united states four sites in australia and one site in israel so now we have uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners who are doing more of that work. But equally, you know, I, I'm trained in anesthesia. I'm not trained in psychiatry. I, I understand. Are you finding that, that again, I'm, I, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years. I'm an internist, but I was exposed and exposed and exposed. So I kind of have an understanding how, how this stuff works. And it's just my prediction would be that that 15%, probably a complex protean group of folks, with lots of other psychiatric psychopathology within, um, are you have you got that data yet? Are you seeing that? Because I wonder if there would be exclusionary criteria or anything like that as you move forward. We are working on that, but I, I don't think it's going to be that simple. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I think it's going to be very complicated. And again, I look at so to me, I look at the word as is that SMP sympathetically mediated psychiatric condition yeah. or SIP. Sympathetically independent psychiatric condition. Right. Yes or no? I I agree with that. I agree with that assessment. I agree that's a great way to look at it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say that 15% that is sympathetically independent might benefit from your treatment if you added other modalities that deal with whatever is going on in that it may not be strictly independent, right? It may be partially independent. That's what I would predict. Oh, no, I agree. So basically, yeah. so let's say we do a procedure and it doesn't work. Yeah. We do well, right side, left side, no effect at all. Then some people, especially with high depressive disorders, we recommend ketamine. Some people like to use psilocybin. Some people do RTMS. It's not like going, well, what, thinking about it, it didn't work. What's RTMS? Is that the, oh, TMS. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. TMS, yeah. yeah. Rapid TMS yeah. or whatever. Oh, so that's interesting. Have you published that data yet? No. The, you know the psilocybin stuff will create great interest, uh, particularly in the, in the PTSD. And there are there, that whole world will support you. I, I, I tell you, but but the um, the world of the maps, the multidisciplinary approach to psychedelic studies, is very interested in very carefully con- constructed populations and studies. Right, but I, that's not so. Basically, they have 
their priorities, frankly. Mm. They, you know, they develop psilocybin, and I think psilocybin is going to get more, more and more accepted. Yeah. Um, I don't think they want me. They'd like to find out who who are the best patients for them. I'd like to see who are the best patients for me, and then we can interact. But see, I think that would I. And I don't mean to be argumentative, but I've talked to the guy. I forget the guy's name. Gary, who was the guy's name that was the founder of Maps? Any event, and he. He is a very careful scientist, and he Rick said, Doblin. "Rick Doblin." And he said, "I can't say anything at this point except I have a good study on complex PTSD with the use of um, MDMA in the right hands, like with a certain kind of skill set with the therapist." He goes, "That's it. That's all I can say. Everything else is all evolving." Exactly. So you know, I'm not an expert in those places, so I, I tried to. I'd like to stick to something I know a lot about. I I, I understand. I totally understand. But you, you, you got to understand that that um, I'm excited by what you're doing. I've been living in the world of PTSD for a long time. I work in the addiction field for 25 years, and all right. of my, you know, most of my, well, they all had trauma, and most of them had some kind of PTSD, something, uh, and. You know, this is literally like, you know, you opened a treasure chest and found something that, you know, the, a, a holy, there's a holy grail here that can, can help these people when so much, so little was, was there. And I understand the complexity of the landscape you're working with. And so a lot of my questions are coming from, you know, my clinical experience around these folks and how complicated they can be. And I, and so I'm just sort of excited about trying to, trying to struggle with all these questions. I mean, if it works, you know, done and done. Do you do you have any addiction uh, research? In other words, do, as the PTSD settle down, does addiction become? Uh, do you treat addicts, or is it more easy to treat? Yeah, is no, it more- it's, the, the cool thing about it is we do treat addicts. Yeah. So I, I'd like to give you an example, which I think would be relevant. So we took care of a lieutenant from the SEALs. He was drinking a liter per day of vodka for ten years. We did the block, and I, he stopped drinking. No side effects. No. Uh, DTs, which still freaks me out. I still don't know why. Some people, people, some heavy, heavy, heavy drinkers have no withdrawal. It's very odd, especially if they're younger. They yeah. will just have, they'll just stop. And I know. That'll be it. <laughs> but, but he was able to stop drinking. And we did, I did a, a study, which I didn't publish, on 55 people who smoked. Uh. Most people stop smoking after stellate. It's huh. all controlled by insulin. It's all mm-hmm. insulin control. Right. Uh, but the but the but the sort of do it again system the the medial forebrain bundle and the shell the nucleus accumbens gets very much involved in all this. It makes me wonder again back to the sort of multidisciplinary approach to this. If uh, the way I kind of wonder is this sort of what I would call making recovery possible? Like these people still may have some things that they need to kind of work on but when that drive is so overwhelming and the ptsd is so disabling it's not possible because you can't do the work that they need to do to stay sober i totally agree so we are actually i'm going to be going to a big institution specialized in addiction in two weeks and we're going to be doing exactly that and they have the entire wraparound service so yeah uh, stay tuned. About six months, I may have some data for it. All right. Well, let's re- let's let's reconvene in six months. The book is Gary. As we has a, have this conversation, the book is out in about two weeks. Is that right? Yeah, two to three weeks, I believe, based on when this is going to be released. Yeah. So it says April 11th on Amazon and my li- stuff here. And so I strongly recommend you get the book uh, if this interests you. And I imagine the people that listen to this podcast have some interest in this area. Uh, the Invisible Machine, The Startling Truth About Trauma and the Scientific Breakthrough That Can Transform Your Life. How long have you been doing this? Uh, the first time I did Stella was 87. Jesus. And the first time I did it for PTSD was 2005. And, and how long have you been doing it at sort of the pace that it, it's at right now? Well, it's last five years. Okay, because it, it feels like something that is about – it takes about five years to get sort of a general awareness and you know everybody thinking about it as a possible therapeutic kind of takes oh, a while. Lord. Takes a while. You're an optimist. Are you kidding me? Ten years? Five years? Well, I, 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 I you know why? I'll tell you why this happens. This, again, <laughs> no, no. Let me tell you why. Because in the world of psychiatry, there there's a lot of uh, desperation and therapeutic failure. And so they keep their ear on new stuff, and they jump at new stuff. They jump at it right away. 
And so once the word kind of gets around, you'll see it. It just boom, all of a sudden everyone's doing it. I, I remember I I've i you know, I've worked there for thirty five years and so I remember as each, you know, new medication came around, it wouldn't be a week before I see everybody on it because right. they they were desperate for, you know, something and these were calcitrant cases. And there are, you know, Skytree got a long way to go. And uh, they and they also love biological based treatments uh, because they you know they they have remembered that their physicians <laughs> about twenty years ago and, and have started started returning to to uh, you know working uh, with the biology. Uh, listen, thank you for the work you do. Did, did I get pretty much across the landscape? Is there more we need to talk about? I no, think, I think you did a great job. Thank I, you so much. I think we surveyed it. I've learned a ton. And uh, I will – how do we refer to you? How do we refer to your programs? That, that's sort of interesting to me because I'm sure people uh, will come along. Yes, yeah, so Ste- stellacenter.com. S-T-E-L-L-A. S-T-E-L-L-A. Stella, Center. Single. Com. Stella Center, yep. single, not plural. And, and do you uh, – is, is you know everybody who's had sort of – sort of diagnosable PTSD symptoms that is frustrated with the level of response, would you take pretty much most people or are there people that are? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, most it, people, I mean, we, we will do the screening. Yeah. Also, obviously they need to be healthy. If they have a bad heart, bad lungs or yeah. blood thinners, they can't stop all of that. Yeah. But overall it seems to work across the board as I was telling you. All right, my friend, it is Dr. Eugene Lipov, I-L-I-P-O-V. Eugene is spelled as usual, Dr. D-R. E-Lipov-MD on Twitter, and uh, we thank you for being here. Thank you so much. All right, hopefully we'll talk again in six months when you have more data on addiction for us. It'd be very interesting. All right, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, and everybody else, we'll see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. See what's screaming all month long during Pluto TV's April Ghouls. Watch hauntingly good movies like Evil Dead and Cloverfield or terrifying shows like The Walking Dead and Nosferatu. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.